Good evening. Well, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Get back into the Gospel of Matthew. You know, as I'm going through and reading, um, there are certain areas of Scripture that you just are a joy to read and just so encouraging, so inspirational, and these passages in Matthew are, are definitely that for me. I keep finding myself more and more in love with Jesus. As I hear him, it's just, oh, now I, I remember why I love you so much. Now I remember why I follow you. Uh, you have exactly what I need. And I hope we're refreshed this evening as well as we go through this passage. You know, in, in chapter 8, a couple of weeks ago when we left off, we, we talked about how Jesus is working and, and making disciples. And what he is doing after his Sermon on the Mount is exactly that. He is bringing people to himself an understanding of what it means to follow him. And we saw last time how there were different people who followed him. Some say, well, I'll follow a few follow you if it pleases me. Others, well, yeah, I understand there's a count or a cost I have to count if I'm going to follow you. And some people, I'll follow you as long as it doesn't cost me too much. We see how different people look at this idea of actually being a disciple. And He's been giving us these accounts, Matthew has, of Jesus' healing, his delivering, his teaching and calling people to follow him. Jesus is the kingdom of God breaking into our world. This is like the light shining through the clouds. Jesus is the beacon of light. We are getting glimpses of who God really is through this man. And it's overwhelming. It's challenging. It is inspiring and it draws us to himself. Tonight we're going to be reading verses 1 through 17 or covering verses 1 through 17 and we're going to look at basically three stories of how Jesus brings freedom to his followers. And freedom is created in the context of relationship. If you were to ask someone who's married, what are the rules of your marriage? They might be able to write some down, but that's hopefully not the way they live. Hopefully they don't live by the rules of marriage. Yeah, I wake up, let me see my checklist. Oh, good morning, honey. Oh, oh, I forgot to give you the kiss check, you know. <laughs> we'll talk later. Uh, Hopefully the relationship is one that there are things that are understood, but because of the relational aspect of the marriage, it's not about the rules, the regulation, the checklist. It's about involving your life with that person. And the freedom that Christ offers to his followers is the same way. Its context is relationship. And we're always wanting to make it something more. We're always wanting it to be something that we can kind of print out, something that we can double check and see if we're in line or not. We use the word religious. And, you know, the word religious has to do with manifesting faithful devotion. And so we don't want to say that all religion is bad because James tells us that there's a good religion, that it's, you know caring for people, that there is something that is good to be devoted to. But we have this idea in our minds of religious being something that follows the ceremony instead of the heart. And so that's kind of the context that we use that in many times. And you cannot have freedom with religious regulations. It just doesn't work. No matter how much you try and establish or change those rules and regulations, freedom seems to just keep knocking it down, knocking it down. And it gets lost when you try and make it into that kind of ritual, that kind of regulation. Even as in a relationship with people, if you try and make it ritual or something that you can print out, you've lost the flow, the, the heart of what's taking place. Let's read verses 1 through 8. 
in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. This would be Capernaum. This is kind of going to be his home base through ministry. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to man. In this verse, we see that Jesus offers us freedom from sin. It's an interesting passage here. There's a lot of things that jump out. One of the things that stands out to me is when Jesus saw their faith, it's plural. It wasn't the man's faith. It was the man and the people who brought him. And remember, faith is always connected to something. In other words, faith is not some ethereal thing that's just floating. I have faith in everything. It's faith in something. Their faith was in Jesus. And when he saw that this group of men had faith in him, he responded to them. And what he said is strange. Here comes a guy, he's paralyzed, he's on a mat, they lay him before Jesus, and he says, your sins are forgiven you. An interesting thing to say. I mean, if you went to the doctor, and the doctor came in with a stethoscope, and he looked at you, and he said, your sins are forgiven you. You might say, well, thanks, Doc, but I, I've still got this lump here on my neck. You know, what, what, what about this? And our focus is on the physical. Our focus is on the paralyzed man and his physical condition. But Jesus seems to see deeper. He seems some, seeing something that's really more necessary. He's seeing a root of what really needs to be healed. And that's not just that he's paralyzed, it's that he needs, we need, our sins to be forgiven. He looks past the physical, sees the real issue, and the real issue is sin. The real issue with all of us is sin. And it's not that sin causes sickness all the time. In John chapter 9, Jesus talks to his disciples about a man who was blind. And the disciples said to Jesus, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, Neither this man or his parents. This man was born this way so that God could receive glory. And so we know that not all sickness is a direct result of sin, but we also know that the condition of the world, the fallen condition, the sickness, the death, all the things that we go through are a result of sin. And so it's very much connected to that in a manner of speaking. If you turn to Psalm 32, David kind of gives us a cool insight in just how this affects us. Psalm 32. David says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whom his spirit is no deceit. When I kept silence, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Many times there is a burden that we carry with us and sin. It weighs on our conscience. It helps to bring us to a place of confession. It draws us to a place to the Lord. And it actually can take a toll on us physically. 
And so no doubt that there is more than just the physical problem that is taking place here. And Jesus is addressing that first and foremost. Now remember, Jesus represents God manifested. We're seeing what God will do in circumstances like this. And and here is a paralyzed man in this condition. And Jesus' words are, take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Think of those words as yours. Wherever you're at and whatever condition you're in. That God isn't saying, what are you doing? You messing up again? Hey, knock it off. Waving a finger at you. Think of God coming to you and saying, take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. That's really what we need. That is the heart of the matter. This is the voice of heaven to broken mankind saying, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. I have come to bring you wholeness, complete healing, not just physically, but of your soul. This causes a problem with those scribes, those teachers of the law who are around him. And, and this is a defining moment. Jesus is separating himself from all other men when he, he says something like this. And that's why they say he's blaspheming. This fellow blaspheming. Fellow, at least they're polite. This, this fellow is blaspheming. You see, only God can forgive sins. That's what they re- say in some of the other gospels. How can you, being a man, forgive sins? You're blaspheming. You're taking on a role that belongs to God alone. And this is where we get to see, well, Jesus is really God himself, manifested in human flesh. And this is still something that causes problems today. I mean, some think, I have no need to forgiveness for forgiveness. Who are you to tell me my sins are forgiven? I don't need to be forgiven. There's not a problem here. There, there are some people who, who stumble because they don't feel they need to be forgiven. Others, you can't make forgiveness so easy. You know, you have to make someone earn it. You can't just go around forgiving people their sins. If you do that, you know, it, it's just you're making things way too easy. And so some say the road is too narrow. Others, the God is being too gracious Uh, but some are going to actually pick up their mat and walk. Some are going to say, this is for me. My sins are forgiven. Jesus is able to do what he says, and I'm going to embrace that. And I'm going to embrace him and what he says and what he has done. And I think that's a powerful thing for all of us to recognize. You see, when Jesus says, why are you entertaining evil within your thoughts? Why are you not willing to believe? They had faith. Why are you so quick not to have faith? And it's so much easier for us not to believe at times than it is to believe. It's so much easier to believe that someone needs to basically earn this forgiveness. It's so much easier for us to believe that, you know, well, I'm not that bad. It's so much easier to to go on either side of this path that Jesus is declaring. And what he is telling us, you know, don't entertain that. Believe in me. I offer forgiveness. Take heart. And what's easier, to say your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk? Well, it's a lot easier to just say your sins are forgiven because there, I said it. But you see, to say take up your bed and walk, now you have to, you have to back it up. You have to have some proof that what you said is really true. And that's why he's putting these together so that you can know that my words, your sins are forgiven, have substance. I'm going to show you that they do. Take up your bed and walk. And now 
You can't deny it. You see, because the kingdom of heaven has just broken through, has just revealed itself in the person of Jesus, that now he has the ability to forgive sins. You don't believe me? Look at this. Take up your bed, walk. Boom. And everyone's walk amazed. They're praising God because such authority has been given to man, to the man, Jesus Christ. And we need to see ourselves in the position of this man and those who brought him, who have faith in Jesus, that he forgives our sins, that he is able to bring restoration to our life. It's a necessity. We all need that. In verse 9, we see that there is a freedom to follow Jesus. In verse 9, as Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me. He told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, here is Matthew's gospel, and he's recounting the event as it took place in his own life. Matthew is a tax collector. When he's sitting there at the tax collector's booth, it's thought that it was by the dock somewhere, and tax collectors were just loathed. A tax collector was put in the same category as thieves and murderers. They were not allowed into the synagogues. They were not allowed to testify in court. Imagine that. There's a, a crime that takes place, a murder, some robbery, and you witness it. And they say, well, we need you to come testify in court. And so you go down to the court and you go and they say, oh, you're a tax collector. I'm sorry, you can't testify. We don't trust that your words are true. You are known for being dishonest, a liar. You can't testify. That's heavy. And Jesus goes to this man and says, follow me. A while back, we went through a series about discipleship, being and making disciples. And one of the things that we spoke on at some length was how discipleship is made with people of faith as well as people who aren't of faith. People who you would think they don't know God, they would never know God. These people can't testify in court. We won't even allow them in the synagogue. And Jesus says, come and follow me. And Matthew does. Now, there's a movie here. There really is. There is such a movie in just these verses I wish someone with talent would write it. You know, what happened? Because most likely Matthew has heard about Jesus. Everyone is. The guy's done miracles. People are talking about him. Maybe he was out there when Jesus was preaching that sermon on the mount and his heart was being pierced. And when Jesus comes and says, follow me, here is a man who was locked in to a profession that put him in a place where he was outcast, where he was considered lowly of the lowest, and Jesus sets him free to follow after him. He says, you, tax collector, follow me. And maybe Matthew just said, here is my chance to get out of this. I, I am able to be free of this burden, able to be free to get out of this life and to start all over. The call to follow him releases him from his past and his future is now redefined. And that's what Jesus does for us. He's able to release us from our past. And he's able to redefine our future. We have faith in him to do that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes about this, that the disciple is dragged out of his relative security into a life of absolute insecurity, 
which is in truth into a life of absolute security. Matthew is leaving what was a very profitable profession to uncertainty. But really that uncertainty was the most security he could find. It was found in Jesus. And that's what Christ asks of us many times. He pulls us out of what we try and make secure into faith, which is very insecure. But in that insecurity and in that faith is absolute security. And so what a picture of Matthew as he is drawn out and now a disciple of Jesus, this tax collector who is abhorred by the people, all of a sudden, he's one of the in crowd. And I love it because verse 10, all of a sudden there's a natural progression. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, he said, come follow me. Hey, let's have dinner at your house. And there he is, and many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him. So now there's a whole debauchery going on. All these people, all these tax collectors, all these, quote, sinners. And of course, Jesus has the title of the friends of sinners. And this is a natural result of what just happened. Matthew gets this call on his life, this invitation. He's a friend now of Jesus. And so he says to his friends, hey, you guys, come, you gotta, you gotta meet Jesus. You gotta meet this guy. And we see that Jesus loves to be with sinners. And that should make everyone in here very comfortable. That should make you happy. Jesus loves to be with sinners, and that includes us. It's a nice thing to be able to say that. It's a good thing for us that he is a friend of sinners. And so here he is in Matthew's house, and he's hanging out with these people and the religious people who like to set up all the rules and regulations that will help keep them distinct, that keeps them separate. They're having issues with this. You know, there, there are certain things you just can't do if you're going to be a, a, a religious person. You, you can't hang out with the tax collectors. There's just got to be a line. You can't listen to that music. You, you can't Read that translation of the Bible. I mean, whatever it is, you, you have to make this list of rules and regulations that define who you are, that makes you better than them, that keeps you separate. Again, it's part of that ritual of trying to define this, but Jesus starts bringing this freedom in, and now you're free to follow me even if you're a tax collector. And Jesus is in the home with these tax collectors, hanging out with them, and it's upsetting the religious people. They understood salvation by separation. Your salvation is separating you from the sinners. And Jesus here brings salvation by association. He is associating himself with us, being fully human, being with us to identify with us so that he can save us. And this is an amazing thing, this freedom to associate. And the Pharisees have a problem with this. In verse 11, they say, and they ask his disciples. I always think it's curious that they first ask his disciples, go to them. We don't want to ask Jesus. Let's ask the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus hears this, he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Jesus comments to them, and the comment, again, is so clear to us now. It's an amazing picture that the God of glory, the God of holiness, is in a room where there are all these people who are so lowly and far from what would be considered right. He's in a room with people who are, are drinking. You know, I, I can imagine that they're there telling their dirty jokes and they're carrying on, and he's just there with them. He's not partaking of drunkenness. He's not rolling on the floor laughing at their dirty jokes. He's just there. 
in the midst of them, he is just there. And that's an amazing picture to me, that God is willing to be present in the midst of the darkness, and he's comfortable. Not that he's going to accept those things as okay, but he's comfortable to be there to deal with that. He, he's tolerating their sin so that he can reach them. He's not tolerating their sin so that he can, their sin is acceptable, but he's willing to be in the midst of it in order to communicate with them. He is becoming man, associating himself with man, being there in the midst of them, this light in this darkness. And the darkness couldn't understand it, couldn't resist it. And it changed them. He's not shocked at them, he's not condemning them, but he's a constant presence in the midst of them. That's just an overwhelming picture. It's an uncomfortable picture. But God's got to do something. Look at that guy, he's drinking too much. Jesus, do something. Call a cab. Get him out of here. And he's just there. And no doubt he's conversing with the people. And Matthew's sitting there with him. And Matthew, who is living this life, is just glued to Jesus. And he's already been changed. And his future is being redefined. And he's seeing who he was. And he's seeing what he wants to be in Jesus. Right there in that room with those people, it's being defined. And all Jesus is doing is in the midst of them, talking with them. And when they're upset about this, look at what he's doing. He's with these sinners. He said, hey, it's not the healthy you need the doctor, but it's the sick. And then he tells them, you know, he sends them away with this verse from Hosea 6, verse 6. And he says, I want you to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You guys, you say you don't need me, fine. If you don't need me, I'm not here for you. I haven't come for the righteous. You're righteous, great. You, you go and live your life. I'm not gonna argue with you that you're not righteous, but I haven't come for you. I've come for those who are sick. And understand what this means, that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy is not a program. He looks past the poverty of our souls and his desire is to reach those who are trapped and broken, just like us. God desires mercy. Sacrifice is the ritual of the law. Sacrifice is what I do to appease God. Mercy is what God wants to give to those who don't deserve it those who are in need, those who are broken. And again, it's an amazing picture. If we're not careful, we can think that we can be good enough where we don't need to ask for forgiveness anymore because I'm doing okay. We can get to a place where we think we're righteous. Well, I'm better than them. You know, those people at the bar over there at the highbrow, I'm better than them. Yeah, we're over here, they're over there. We have to be careful if we ever think that we're in a place where we don't need his forgiveness. That we can live such spiritual lives that we're no longer in need of a physician. And we find ourselves outside like the Pharisees, looking and accusing. Jesus stays with the needy, with the desperate sinners. That's where he makes his home. Martin Luther writing to someone wrote this. He says, beware of ever desiring such purity that you don't want to seem to yourself as a sinner for Christ dwells only in sinners. There's a danger in self-righteousness. 
there's a danger in thinking that we're better than. And, and so it challenged me, and it challenges us, I think, how do you think about people? What do you think of those? Do you think those people are stupid? I don't like the things that they do. Those people, they make bad decisions. They spend their money on stupid stuff. They're, they're not frugal. They, they do things the wrong way. They're too lavish with their grace. Are you better than them? Because you think different, because you don't involve yourself in different things. Once you start comparing, know that pride is involved because at the root of all comparison is pride. And it's not the righteous that Jesus has come for. It's for those who are in need. And so we need to see ourselves, and that's again what verse 1 of chapter 5 is all about. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus frees us from the need that we have to set apart ourselves entirely from the world in a form of religious separation. He frees us from having to follow the list of rules and regulations in order to earn God's favor. He frees us to be able to be who we are, which is broken human beings. And we're going to talk more. He doesn't leave us there, but we're free to follow him right where we're at. And remember that he dwells with those who are of broken and contrite spirit. And so that's where we need to see ourselves. He goes on in verse 14. Then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? This kind of cracks me up. Now, this isn't the Pharisees. This is John's disciples. Aren't, these guys are kind of on the same team. But you kind of get this jealousy going on. How come we're fasting, and you're in there with all those tax collectors, and you're having a party? That doesn't seem fair. You know, why does God let... The Episcopals drink, and we can't, you know? I mean, it's kind of, why are those things allowed? Why are you guys able to do that? And we can't. And so we see that the Pharisees who have this religious legalism and John's disciples are trying to find out what's going on. Why are you doing this? It's contrary to what we think should be taking place. And Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them, the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. Jesus gives an illustration of a wedding. And a wedding was a big deal. When a wedding took place, it could last for a week. In fact, people would take vacations to go, oh, I'm going to my nephew's wedding, I'm going to take the week off. And the week would be full of dancing, of drinking, of partying with their friends. That's why Jesus, at the wedding, when he did his first miracle, and they ran out of wine, and he made like 180 gallons of wine. That seems excessive, doesn't it? I mean, if it's just one night, come on, that's kind of crazy. But no, it's for a week. It's for a, a long period of time. And so that's, it was for a lot of people for the whole week. They would stay there and they would be festive. It was a celebration. And so there was to be merriment. There was supposed to be the eating. There was supposed to be the dancing, the laughing, the having fun. Why? Because it's a celebration of this marriage. And Jesus is saying it just wouldn't be right if you went to a wedding and you just started fasting. You go to someone's wedding Hey, come on, let's dance. No, no, I'm praying. I'm praying. I'd love to celebrate with you right now, but, you know, there's some heavy things on my heart. It's like, dude, leave. <laughs> this is a wedding. We're here to have a good time. You're raining on our parade. It doesn't fit here. And Jesus is saying there will be a time when the bridegroom leaves himself, he's speaking of, and they will fast. But right now, this is a time of celebration. And so right now, they have this time with me to be able to enjoy the time, to learn from me, to draw close to me. And so that's why this is taking place. 
Jesus is the kingdom of God breaking into humanity. This is the time to celebrate. This is the time that all creation has been desiring for, even as Romans 8 tells us. There will be a time to fast, but there's no formula that makes it the right time or the more spiritual time. No, you always have to fast. You know, I was talking with Kareen just the other day about, I call it Jesus jargon. People throw Jesus and spirituality into everything. You know, oh, bless God, brother. How are you? I'm fine. Bless God to you, too. You know, it just comes across so holy. It, It comes across, and it can come across as a little bit, I don't know, superficial to me. And it's almost like, yeah, we're real spiritual. We're, we're in tune with the spirit. And so we use these religious words. I'm praying for you, brother. Bless God. And it's always praise the Lord, bless God. You know, those kinds of words. It's like Jesus jargon. It, the words themselves aren't wrong, but sometimes they can be overused. I went to a conference one time. It was at a worship conference. And there was a guy who was speaking, and he's talking to all these young worship leaders in making. And he told them, I will not sing a love song to anyone but to Jesus, because it is only Jesus that I will give my love and devotion to in song. And everyone's all, oh, that's deep. That's deep. And not me, though. I, I, was, I was bugged. <laughs> I wanted to raise my hand. And excuse me, have you read the song of Solomon there, the song of songs? Because I think he had something else in mind. I think God put it in the Bible, and I think that's okay. I think there's some beautiful songs that are written to, to wives and to children and to friends and to people who we admire. I don't think that's unholy or less than. And you see, as John's disciples are coming and they're saying, why aren't you fasting? It's, aren't you supposed to be praying and fasting? Hey, it's okay. You see, we can still have our minds set on the kingdom of heaven and be living in this world. I talked about this last year, I think, sometime where we, we did a series, and I talked about what it means to have our minds set on the kingdom of heaven, and I compared it to labor pains because I know so much about them, and... Well, that was a joke. Uh, when a woman is in labor, she has those pains, and those pains tell her baby is coming. And she'll have that labor pain, and it'll go on for a period of time, maybe a minute or so, and she's there, oh, and she feels the pain, and her whole body is just aware of baby coming now. But then the the pain subsides, and she doesn't stay. Okay, baby's coming, baby's coming. I gotta stay in labor pain. No, she's she'll get some ice chips. I don't know why you always have ice chips, and, and you can eat some ice chips, or they might be watching TV because now in the rooms they have TV, and you can be watching something, basketball game if the husband's in the room or whatever, and, and you're just there, and it's fine. But then in four more minutes. Baby's coming. Here comes the pain again. Your mind is set. Baby is coming. In between, you can talk. You can go to the movies. You can watch the Super Bowl. You can go to the wedding. But your mind is fixed. This is coming. This is what it's about. Because sooner or later, baby's going to be here, and it's going to be all about baby. Four minutes, three minutes, two minutes, one minute, pretty soon... It's labor time and it's happening. Our minds are set on Christ. We can still go and have a good time eating. We don't have, no, I'm praying, bro. You want to go to a comedy? I hear this guy's out there. Oh, no, I'm a Christian. What? Christians don't laugh? What? You know, what's going on? Why so serious? Um, A movie quote. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Anyway. I digress. Religious people can always be comparing what they do or how they do things better. The truth is 
they probably are better. I mean, really, not to depress anyone here, but if that's what you have to live by, if that is your standard, if your whole system is based on that, then they probably are living better. They probably are doing things in that way because they have to. It's a requirement of them. But they're not free. They're under a bondage. What we do is based on grace. Our, our hearts, our devotion is fixed on Christ. But we're free to, to be in this world but not absorbed by this world. You know, there are some people who just know the Bible backwards and forwards. And I always got nervous whenever they had, you know, you'd go to someone's house and they're, oh, we're going to play Bible trivia. And it's like, oh, you know, no, I stink at Bible trivia, you know. And you just get this idea of, oh, no, I can't, I can't compete. I'm not good enough. And you think about that. That's kind of what we do with our children so many times. Who's got the memory verse? All right, you memorize the verse, you get a star. All right, and it's always the girls. You know, they're always able to memorize those things, and so their name is on the board, and little Johnny's there, and, you know, I didn't get on the board again. Yeah, this, this isn't for me. I'm not good at memorizing the Bible. I'm not good at Bible trivia. I don't like playing those games. It makes me look stupid. And all of a sudden, you start feeling like, well, to, to be right with God, I have to be good at Bible trivia. You know, maybe I can cheat. You know, well, no, that's not good. And we see that we start putting our focus on the wrong things instead of on being free to, to love, free to be a part of what God has called us to be. What happens so many times is we, we want to build a fence so that people won't go too far. You know, okay, you're hanging out with sinners, but you can't get involved with them. So we're going to make a fence. This is how far you can go and no further. But you see, we're, we're good at getting past the fence. We're good at getting out. We're good at finding the holes and the little places, and pretty soon we're able to jump the fence, and so we have to make the fence higher. Okay, we're going to make more rules, more regulations to make sure you don't sin. You can't now know you're, you're involved with ministry, so you're not allowed to talk to any women because that's going to, you might sin and, you know, have an affair. And so you can't text women, you can't email women, no women. We'll just make the fence higher. There, that'll keep you in. But you see, if your heart is bent on having an affair, there's no fence that you can't knock down. You're going to knock it down. I know pastors who know the Bible backwards and forwards who've blown it. Why? Because they didn't know the scripture? Because they didn't know where the fence was? No, it's because they wanted to. And so we build fences trying to keep people in. But what Jesus does is Jesus digs a well. And he puts the water there and he plants a garden. And he says, you're free to go, but the water and the food is here by me. And if you want to eat and if you want to drink, stay close to me. And so you go wandering off and you say, man, it's thirsty. I don't like it out here. It it's, doesn't feel right. And we find ourselves drawing back to Jesus. There are no fences. There is the freedom to come to Jesus, to follow after Jesus. People use rules and guilt to conform people's behavior, but it's that same guilt that will keep people from God as well. And so whenever Jesus brings freedom, there's always going to be uptight religious people or the uptight liberal people who are going to resist it. The uptight religious people, that's too free. You're, you're not living right. You have to conform to these rules. The uptight liberal people, there are no rules. You're, you're, you're making us stay close to Jesus. We don't like that. Some people feel guilty regardless, you know, and, and so some people aren't going to understand and aren't going to be close and want to stay close to the Lord. The freedom that we have is freedom to be from sin. Jesus goes on 
And he says in verse 16, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Jesus is telling us that he is bringing something new here, that he is giving us a freedom, but the freedom can't be put into the old regulations. It won't work. This freedom has to be in this new covenant. It has to be a part of this new work that he is doing. And so many times we want to put the old work or the new work into the old ways, and we find ourselves just working and frustrated with those things. We need to understand, though, what freedom is about. Because freedom involves responsibility. And I have to touch on this because, you know, I've been talking about rules and regulations and, and Jesus hanging out with sinners, but we are free from sin, not free to sin. And it's important that we recognize this difference. With freedom is the responsibility of relationship, to show up, to respond, to be involved. And any of you who are in a relationship know that the responsibility of a relationship has a lot stronger hold on your life, or should, than the obligations, say, of work. The relationship with my wife is a lot more serious than me showing up at work at 9 o'clock or 8 o'clock in the morning. It has a lot deeper hold of me. And it does require more of me, but it's, again, in a different way, just as we talked about at the very beginning. And it's important for us to recognize this, because just because Jesus hung out with the sinners doesn't mean it's okay or you're able to. It's okay to say, I'm not Jesus. And every time I go to the bar, I end up getting tanked. So I just don't go. That's okay. You're free to say, I can't go to the bar anymore. I can't hang out with these people because every time I do, it, it turns into something bad. I can't involve myself in this relationship because I know if I do, it's going to lead me into a sinful place and I'm just not strong enough. I'm not influencing them. They're influencing me. And it's okay to say, I, I just can't do that. In fact, it's good to. There's nothing wrong with you being able to say that and, and stop that. I can't do that anymore. You know, instead of me going and hanging out with you there, why don't you come to my house? Let's go to the house. You know, if you want, you can have a beer at the house, but I can't go to the bar because I end up having six beers, and that's not good for me because then I, I get in trouble. And so you start recognizing your limitations and your boundaries. Why? Because the watering hole and the food are over here by Jesus, and I find myself going outside and starting to stray and starting to need those things that are back here, and it's okay. We need to recognize that the freedom we have comes with the responsibility. You see, what you're free to is to be passionately in love with Jesus and seek him without worrying about rules and regulations, hoops that you have to jump through. You are free to make him your first love, free to make him your passion and, and to, to go for it with all that you have and not worry about anything stopping you as far as those rules and those regulations. Oh, did you, you know, you didn't come to church on Sunday. You're, you're not able to worship God. Oh, you, you didn't read your Bible three times this week. You're, you're not close enough to God. Oh, you didn't pray for this long of a time. Oh, you, you can't be close to God. None of those things apply. Now, it's great to go to church. It's great to read your Bible and it's great to pray. But there's not an obligation there is the freedom to seek after him. And why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we want to follow the one who says, take heart, your sins are forgiven. 
Take up your mat. I'm going to make you whole. Come, follow me, you who are lost in this sin and this brokenness. Follow me. You have a home with me. You have a place with me. Why wouldn't we want to follow him? Why wouldn't we want to learn more about him? Why wouldn't we want to seek him with our hearts, with all that we have? This is God. This is life itself. And we have the ability to draw near to him, to drink, to eat. Bread that will not keep us hungry. Water that will quench us, our thirst. Why would we want to eat what wouldn't when we have that which can? Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would bring clarity in our hearts of what it means when you give us freedom. Lord, the freedom you give us to be free from our sins, God. The freedom you give us to follow after you. The freedom we have to be associated with those who are outside who the world considers sinners. The freedom we have from the regulations that would try and build fences and hold us in. Lord, we are free from all those things there is nothing that stands between us and you. Jesus, you have torn the veil. You, the, the way is made clear between us and the holies of holy because of what you've done. You've told each of us to take heart. Our, our sins are forgiven. Like Matthew, you've told us and called us to, to come and follow you. And that's what we want to do. We want to hear your words and we want to respond. And we want to be as close to you as we can. And God, you know our sinfulness. Lord, sometimes it is so apparent. Sometimes the wickedness of my heart is overwhelming. And I'm so thankful that you are able to still be with me. Lord, that you don't leave me in that time of darkness, that you, you don't leave the house and say, no, this is too dark, I have to move. Lord, that you stay there in my midst and you're the light, you're the well that I can go to, to find forgiveness, to find healing, to find restoration. Lord, may we always draw back to you. May we always recognize that you dwell in sinners. And Father, may our pride not rise up and we think ourselves better than others because we're more gracious or better than others because we do more things, better than others because we have certain regulations. Father, may we recognize that we are in desperate need of you all the time, that we are sinners and you are pleased to make your home in sinners. Father, make your dwelling with us. May you continue to draw us to yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.